and we need to get to a point where there are measures of purpose activation that are causal with financial results. So when boards and public companies begin reporting on measures that, that show the linkage between purpose activation and financial results, and companies are competing to activate their purpose even better, we will have better business. I'm Eric Fulweiler, and this is Scratch, bringing you marketing lessons from the leading brands and brains, rewriting the rulebook from scratch for the world of today. Hey everyone, I'm incredibly excited to share my conversation with you today. We have on a giant from the marketing world. Jim Stengel was the CMO at Procter & Gamble for seven years. He was at P&G for 25 years in total. He founded the Jim Stengel company in 2008, whose tagline is a passion for purpose. And as you can imagine, we talk a lot about purpose in today's episode. He also hosts the CMO podcast, which has been on air and running since May of 2019. It's all about how CMOs drive business results with purpose. It's one of my favorite podcasts. I definitely recommend you go to check it out. He's also an adjunct professor at Northwestern, and he's the author of two books. We talk about both of those today. Some of the things that we get into just to give you a highlight we talk about purpose, of course, but with a real focus on how and why purpose drives business results and everything that Jim has been doing, really his whole career, but certainly with the Jim Stengel company and some of the investments and other activities that he has, he's really, he has a lot of interesting things to share about how you can actually prove that purpose drives business results. He talks about what he would do if he was CMO of P&G or another company again today, how he would start thinking about things from scratch. And then he leaves us with, and actually touches on it a couple times during the interview, a very provocative and uh, profound recommendation around how to be more intentional with how you spend your time and your life in general. So please enjoy today's episode with Jim Stengel and special guest host, Dean Aragon, CEO of Shell Brand. Hey, before we get to today's episode, I wanted to take just a second and ask a favor. If you're listening to this, I really appreciate it. This is a new podcast. We at Rival are a new company. It's hard to get this all off the ground, and I really appreciate the support. To ask an even bigger favor of you, if you could please, if you're enjoying the content that we're putting out, if you've listened to a couple episodes, or even if you're new, could you please take a minute to share Scratch with someone else that you think would enjoy it? That would mean so much to us get the word out, start to build our audience. I'd really, really appreciate it. So if you could just take a minute, you can pause this. Just think about, is there someone else out there, another marketer who you think would find this content valuable? And please send this along to them. I really appreciate it. Now on to the episode. Jim, thank you so much for joining us today. I've been really looking forward to this conversation since we first connected. I'm a longtime listener of the CMO podcast, so it's extra special to be uh, on the mic with you today. Is your favorite episode Dean Aragon? Of course. <laughs> of course. <laughs> the brand guy at Shell? That has nothing to do with the fact that he's in the virtual room with us right now. Dean, uh, hello. How are you? Thanks for joining as my, my co-host today. It's a pleasure, and uh, I am a lucky person in that I can call Jim a friend. I feel the same way, Dean. And Eric, you're in the group now too, okay? So we're going to have a nice nice chat today. Amazing. I'll, uh, I'll wait for my t-shirt. 
Cool. So we have a lot to get through. I mean, there's so many questions that I would love to ask you, and maybe I'll let Dean get one or two in at some point as well. But we are introducing a bit of a new framework to the show based on feedback from our listeners. So we're going to have some more structured questions that are hopefully just you know, maybe a different angle into some of the things that we would have talked about otherwise. And then I've got a whole slew of notes based on you and what you've done and some of the conversations that we've had. So uh, yeah, we're gonna have to all talk fast. But let's start, and I will say this is a little bit of a inspiration slash maybe stealing with pride from your own podcast, Jim. But talk to us first about what's a brand that you're obsessed with right now. Oh my. I'm in San Diego right now, and I'm actually obsessed with two San Diego brands. One is Electra Bikes, E-L-E-C-T-R-A, the most amazing. I have a beach cruiser that's hand-painted, wide tires. I'm on it every day. And when I'm working, if I want to take like a 10-minute break, I jump on my Electra, and I just sort of bomb around town. Clears my head. I feel good on it. I like the wind in my face. Second brand in San Diego that I'm kind of obsessed with is a clothing brand called Vuori, which is, I think, Finnish for mountaintop. It's V-U-O-R-I, relatively new brand. Oh my gosh, the clothing is so damn comfortable. It's sort of fitness attire, but you can wear it anytime. And I, I've been to their flagship store several times. I live in it. I just love it. And, uh, and then outside of that, I'm an, I'm an espresso person. I have both machines, one in my study, one in our house. I begin my day, and I, I, I probably go to that machine, I don't know, too much, probably five times a day. And, I you know, HBO Max, I just love. I mean, I'm a, I'm a streaming person now. I hardly ever go to the theaters. I hardly ever watch any television other than sports and streaming. And I just think almost everything HBO Max does is just so beautifully done. I just finished, I'm late on this, but I just fin- finished Succession, and wow, wow, so many themes there. And so anyway, those three, and there's probably more, but those three. And I, by the way, I just bore, bought a my first electric car. I bought a Mustang Mach 3 EUV and just driven it once because I bought it in Cincinnati and left it there until I go home, and what a game change. I mean, on it's a beautiful, beautiful car, and I've only, I, wore, I ordered it eleven months ago, and it finally was delivered in January, and it's just a beautifully designed car in every way. How did you decide to go with the Ford versus the Tesla? My son was doing some work in the auto industry, and he said the early reviews on the Mustang were unreal. The design is unreal, and at the end of the day, he feels that. GM and Ford know how to make cars. At the end of the day, they will make better cars than the brand that's all the buzz today, Tesla. And I think if you look at the Mustang and how everything fits together, it's a better built car than a Tesla. I think that's what's really interesting in that space is obviously there are these really hot brands and a lot of buzz around these new, you know, started from scratch electric vehicle companies, but there's a lot of legacy and a lot of knowledge and a lot of money in those traditional businesses and they are catching up. They might be a little bit late, but that's going to be interesting to watch play out. I'm curious, Jim, you know, we're still on the first question, but you know, the question of what's a brand that you're obsessed with, your answers were kind of about the product. This bike's amazing. I love the espresso. The show is on HBO Max. Is there something about those brands that also speaks to you? Or, um, 
you know, maybe there's no differentiation. Like what would you say to that of, I asked you about brand and your answer was about product. Well, I, I think there are brands that have become something I, 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 they're a habit for me or they're a ritual. I put on my Vori every day. I ride my Electra every day. I watch HBO Max a couple times a week. I will get into the Mustang when I'm home nearly every day. So I think a, a criteria for a brand that has impact and has meaning and has purpose is it becomes part of people's rituals. Why is, uh, I just interviewed the CMO of Orange Theory yesterday for my podcast. That is a meaningful ritual for over a million people around the world. And when you become part of someone's life and you have impact on that person in those moments that they are interacting with your brand, that's the criteria for me for a great brand and a brand that will last the test of time as long as it stays relevant. Uh, I think it's also, you know, us marketers sitting here in our tiny corner of the world you know, we see brands, but for most consumers, and that's us included, there's really no separation between product and brands. And that's one of the things, um, you know, that I see and that we see as one of the differences, I'm obviously overgeneralizing, but a lot of challenger brands, a lot of startups, the way that they operate and the way that they think, they don't separate product and brand. And then as some of these companies grow and get bigger, there starts to be a little bit more of like a silo between the product and the brand. But where it hits the market, for better or for worse, the product and brand are the same thing. Um, so I think it's just, and you know, it's just interesting to hear you riff on that. Well, I think brand, great brands can last forever. Great products change. Right? Apple is a great brand. Its products 20 years ago were very different. So a brand is a much more everlasting idea, a much more appealing idea. And I think brands have a purpose. Products have a use to deliver that purpose in a meaningful, a meaningful way. And so I think when we get stuck on a product as a brand, I mean, in the early days of P&G, this is even before I joined the company, there was debate about making Tide a liquid People thought that Tide was a powder. And that's a very limited view, and that's a very dangerous view. Fortunately, there were smart people there to say, no, Tide's a brand, and it's going to take different forms over time, and it's okay to call a liquid Tide. I think those are fundamentals, Jim, that thankfully you're reminding a number of the marketeers who might be listening in. Because I think sometimes we go into this binary and detached view of the brand and the product. And to your point, the brands can transcend the form and function of a product or a service or a solution. But would you agree that, but unless it's also rooted in uh, a utility or a benefit that you connect with, it's also potentially a shallow connection. So you need both, shall we say, respect for what it delivers to you, but also an emotional admiration or connection to what it represents. Is that something that you can agree with? Yeah, absolutely, Dean. I was I interviewed Guy Kawasaki, who was an early employee of Apple, for my podcast a couple of weeks ago, and I asked him advice for CMOs, and he quickly said, "Join a company that makes great products, and if you don't have great products, your job is going to be very hard, and you'll end up being inauthentic." So, the, one of the best things a great marketer can do, or a great CMO can do, and Unilever and P&G marketers do this, is push, push, push for better products. 
products that deliver a superior and more delightful experience in the competitive set. So yeah, Dean, I totally agree with that philosophy and that point of view. So Jim, you are doing a bunch of different things these days. I'm curious what you're most curious about professionally with everything you're doing, everything you're seeing, all these conversations that you're having. Oh my, uh, this maybe is an unexpected answer. I'm curious about how I spend my life right now and how I spend my time and how can I have greater intentionality and how can I learn from others on that front. You know, one reason I love doing a weekly podcast is I get inside someone else's life to see what their intentionality is. And uh, if I think about the most important things in my life, they are all about very specific friends and family and people I want to be with more. I also want to be in more nature. I want to take care of my spiritual and physical self as well as my, you know, mental and social self. So I'm endlessly curious about, and we're a little bit at the start of the year now, so we all think about that a little bit more sometimes at the end of a year. Uh, just very curious about uh, experimenting a little bit more and ensuring that I am self-aware enough to be spending the time that I want to spend my time on. And that's that's and and this is the blend of personal and business, which and I think it's always a blend. It's always about integration. So that's one area I'm curious about. Um, and, and Dean knows this, I'm, I'm very curious about how purpose can be baked into our way of doing business. So it's that it it is sustained as a way of doing business. And, and, and we need to get to a point where there are measures of purpose activation that are causal with financial results. So when boards and public companies begin reporting on measures that, that show the linkage between purpose activation and financial results, and companies are competing to activate their purpose even better, we will have better business. So I'm very curious about that. Uh, I'm spending a lot of time right now with my team and a software company we've invested in on, on, a, on achieving some sort of breakthrough in purpose measurement. NPS is not it. We need something beyond that. Yeah, Jim, again, I think it's great that as marketeers we're talking again about this fundamental ingredient called curiosity, right? So so perhaps a slightly provo- provocative question. What do you think marketers are not being curious enough about when they should be? Dean, I'll give you a very f- fundamental answer. I don't think you're curious enough about what's around the corner. We're still spending way too much of our time on today's business and this month's business and this week's business and if you think about your allocation of time, how much time are you spending preparing your brand or your company for the future? Uh, what are emerging consumer trends, especially now as things are so, so volatile? What, what about a, what business model trends? What social trends? What environmental trends? And how are you uh, trying to prepare scenarios to deal with these so that you can stay uh, competitive and, and win in the future? We just don't spend enough time on that. And to me, the remarkable senior leaders and senior marketing leaders are intentional about spending time on the future and spending time on today's issues. And they're both important. But in most companies, there's far, we spend far too little time on preparing ourselves for the future. How do you recommend that people do that? Because that's, uh, you know, 
it's one of the advantages that challengers have over incumbents is they only have to care about the long term. Whereas if you're an established business, you need to deliver on the short term while positioning yourself for the long term as well. So I'm curious, just advice that you have, or maybe how you did it when you were CMO of Procter & Gamble, how do you balance those with the investment of time, resource, and just alignment within your team? Yeah, I mean, I think it's how you spend your time and who you spend your time with. So what does your calendar tell you? And who are the people that you go to for counsel and advice and inspiration? And do you have a good mix of people who'd have a di- uh, maybe a more expansive view of the future than you do? And so I think it's just very important to think about your partners, your potential partners, and how you spend your time, and leveraging the diversity of your team as well. How much, of, how much do you talk about this with your team? How much do you share with your team your ambition to spend more time on what's around the corner and, and seeking their help in doing that? You know, I, I can remember this, is, goes, this, this goes back many years, but when I was at P&G, I shared with my team how I wanted to spend my time and what I was not going to deal with and what I was going to deal with. So they knew this is not an issue that Jim wants to deal with. This is an issue that you know, Sally is going to deal with. I was very, very clear. I had a long chart about where I was going to spend my time and where I wanted to have a personal impact. And, and so I think it's, again, it's being intentional about that and looking at your time and the kind of people you talk to. I think the calendar point is such a big one and it's so easy to kind of glance over of like, yeah, the calendar thing, but give me a, give me a hack for this. What gets prioritized gets done and what goes in your calendar gets prioritized. And so looking at how you're spending your time, because that's really all we got, the results, good or bad, are going to follow how you invest your time. And it's an easy way to give yourself a bit of a gut check. Dean, do you want to riff on this a little bit? I mean, obviously, you're responsible for one of the biggest brands in the world. And with everything going on in your industry, there's a lot when it comes to short-term and long-term. So how do you balance those priorities? Well, I just love the answer of Jim about you know, what's around the corner, what's about to come, because we can be so obsessed about the short term. And in, in marketing uh, sort of geekdom, this can also translate to just focusing on the articulated needs. But there are the unarticulated needs or needs that people don't even realize that they may need or they may want. And it's not one or the other. You know, sometimes there's this false binary. So, Jim, again, some thoughts on that, because, you know, similar to the whole area of, you know, it's not just about the product, it's about the union of the product and the brand. Would you also submit to that notion of, yeah, it's not one or the other, because sometimes it's an it's it's the wrong debate. It's about how you secure the short term, but also be prepared for a, a less certain uh, longer game in the future. Yeah. No, I think obviously they're both important. If you're an established brand, you have to... You have a business. You have customers to to um, to to make to make happy and to you know the, the short term is really important and the short term is fun because it's a lot of the tactics of marketing, right? It's the stuff you put into the market, and we all get jazzed by that. Uh, but in my, if you have a good organization and, and you should have a great organization, if you're a senior marketing leader or CMO, you have to build a great team. Your team is going to be highly capable. They're going to be able to take care of most of the short-term issues. You need to be you need to be brought in if you're a senior marketing leader or CMO, you know, in very very special moments and special times. But if the team knows what they're doing and they're they're hired well and they're trained well, they're going to do a great job in the short term. So I think the best way to spend your time is to make your make sure your team 
is a high-performance team and a collaborative team, and that opens you up and releases you to spend more time in the future while still being accountable for the short, short term. The accountability doesn't shift. It's, it's how you get the work done and the people that you bring onto your team to get that work done in a, in a fantastic way. I think Jeff Bezos at one point said that he views his role as focusing on two years into the future and beyond. And he's got people who work for him who focus on one year into the future. And then they have people who work for them that focus on the current year. And so, you know, maybe if you're if you're not the CEO of a massive global company, you can still apply that model to whatever your remit is of you need to be focused on a couple moves ahead. You need people who are going to be focused on one move ahead, and they need people who are going to be focused on the present. But I think the most important thing is making sure that all of those dimensions are taken care of, even if it's you that just has to operate in different gears to do those things. So Jim, looking back on your career, I'm curious to get your answer to this question, which is, what do you think mattered most to getting you to where you are today? Trust reputation, how um, I work with people over the years. I mean, the most valuable thing any of us have, and Dean knows this and has spoken about this, is, is your, your reputation, who you are as a human being. Have you met your promises? Have you met your commitments? Do people respect and trust you? And do people feel like they can be themselves with you? And there is no doubt, if I think about the great leaders I admire, and I look back at my own career. You know, I left PNG many years ago. I started up my own thing. You know, it's been a great experience. I've done well. I haven't done any outbound marketing. It's all been people who trust me, know me, and I worked with in the past who who want to work with me again because of the reputation and because of how we work together. So, of course, I've made lots of new friends in the last ten years, uh, but. But I think um, I think one reason the podcast I do is fun and successful and growing is I'm trusted. When people come on the podcast, know that we'll have a really honest, helpful, useful, inspiring conversation about their life. So it's all about trust and reputation. Hey, everyone. We're going to have some of our own research to share with you very soon, research that we've conducted on a test. But for the next couple episodes, we're going to continue to share some of the stats that a test has found in their research that's relevant to the conversations that we're having with guests. So one recent report on U.S. consumer trends found that 24% of Americans don't want brands to be political, but the majority do want them to take a stand on social issues. And the top issues that consumers want brands to be vocal on are poverty and inequality at 36%, racism at 36%, and climate change at 31%. So as you listen to this conversation with Jim and Dean around purpose, just know this is the direction that the market is going in. People want brands to take stands on these types of issues. So hope that that is relevant to this conversation. And if you have not yet checked out the Attest platform, head on over to askatest.com to run your free survey and access 110 million consumers to help remove the guesswork from your business growth. And those answers could also be applied, at least in my opinion, to what makes a great brand. If you're talking about a product and the job we do as marketers, but is also has what made your personal brand and your career um, so successful. So 
I'm curious, if you had the opportunity to start a CMO role over from scratch again today, it doesn't have to be Procter & Gamble, it could be maybe one of those brands that you mentioned you're very passionate about right now, where would you start? Like, What does from scratch Jim Stengel's CMO do? What does he focus on? What does he prioritize? What are the first moves you make as a new CMO? If I were to join any brand right now, the first thing I would do is listen I think, Dean, you said this to me a little while ago, two ears are greater than one mouth. And there, there is just no, every time I made a transition in my career that was successful, I went in with my ears wide open and I spent a lot of time to listen. And I, and I was clear with my management that I was going to do a listening tour that would probably take me whatever, six or eight weeks. And I would not have a firm point of view on my role or my contributions or my value until I listened. And Believe me, in any organization, if you go in and do the right listening tour, your agenda becomes very clear. And uh, so that's what I would do. I would listen, and then I would bring my team together after we've listened, and we would think about how we can help that brand and help that company reach their potential. You know, I'm, I'm a big purpose person, so it, it obviously has to start there. But only after you listen and you understand the history of this company, the history of this brand, and what people in the business think, value, and, and where they think you can add the greatest contribution. Has to go inside out. Why do you think, Jim, sorry, Eric, what, 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 but I'm really curious <laughs> about this because, indeed, you know, if, if you're really genuinely curious, right, you're, you're going to come with more questions than answers, right? Why is it so difficult for some to, to just follow what sounds so true and so logical as an approach. Dean, I think they get caught up in the maelstrom of the business and the new role. And they are not, we're using this word a lot today, but they're not intentional about the expectations of their first three months. And I, I, I think, you know, a lot of CMOs, there's a long courting process for most CMOs or senior marketing people to come into a role or a company. And once they get into the role, everyone's impatient for them to attend meetings, contribute, make decisions. And I think you get people get thrown into the machine, the execution machine, before taking the time to learn and to think. And again, this is something really fundamental. Uh, I, th I just think people lose control a bit. And so I think that's one big reason it doesn't happen. Then another one is not everyone is a good listener and they're not self-aware enough to know that they're not a good listener and they don't value it. They don't think it's important. Therefore, they don't spend the time doing it. And I don't think those end well, those situations. I think it's also tough because people starting new roles, there's a lot of pressure to deliver. And so for me, because I totally agree with you and take that approach, like the first 90 days is listening as much as possible, both because you don't actually know the right thing to do. You might think you do, but you don't know until you really hear everybody out. And also, if you're there for the long term, if you want to drive purposeful, sustainable change, you need people to be bought in. And you know, people aren't going to follow someone that they don't feel like has listened to them. Um, so when I started as CMO of 11FS, I set that expectation up front with my CEO of like, look, just so you know, this is how I want to go about things. I'm going to help where I can and maybe make some short-term changes 
uh, in the first 90 days, but it's really going to be about listening so that I can put together a plan for you at the end of that that's going to drive the long-term growth that we want. So I think part of it to get tactical for people listening, regardless of the level of the role you're coming in at, is set that expectation with your boss of this is how you want to do it, and maybe that takes some of the pressure off. Here's a nice tactical tip. I mean, I was promoted within P&G to be CMO years ago, and I it, I was told about I was told I was I was offered the job months before it was announced, and I took that time to interview every living ex CEO of P&G and every living ex CMO of P&G about what they thought I should do to add the most value to the company, and I also hired a few academics to do a study of how people within P&G marketing spent their time. And it was, it was cloaked as some other kind of study. People didn't know that I was behind it and so on. Uh, but I had, I had all of that data by day one, what every CEO and CMO felt, and, and no one cares more than those people. And I also knew how people were spending their time, and it was not on the right stuff. So that gave me a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of information uh, before it was announced to the world that I was PNG's new global marketing officer. It was massively helpful in getting off to a fast start. So let's talk about purpose. I've had to hold myself back from diving into that because I know that's the, you know, that is um, that's the world that you know better than anybody else, and I think you have so much value to share. Uh, with the people listening. So the place I want to start and the way that I want to frame it up is you published a book in 2012 called Grow, How Ideals Power Growth and Profit at the World's 50 Greatest Companies. So you had 10 years of empirical research involving 50,000 companies in that book. And what you were able to show is that there is a cause and effect relationship between financial performance and the ability of these companies to connect with fundamental emotions, human emotions, hopes, values, and greater purposes. So let's start there. Why is purpose so important, not just for us marketers, but for the financial results of the businesses around these brands? Uh Purpose is important because it works. It's very effective in growing brands. It's, to me, the most the ultimate competitive edge. And so that's why I'm passionate about it. I've learned a lot more about it over the last 25 years. That book I wrote 10 years ago, I, I used the best data I could, uh, and I was looking for the correlation. I couldn't really claim causality. And, uh, and I think the data is getting better and better, richer and richer, more and more specific. And countless studies have come out since I wrote that book about the impact of purpose on business results. If you look at Deloitte's latest 2022 global marketing trends, and they interviewed 11,000 consumers and 1,100 executives, purpose is the number one trend. And there's, there's rich data in that report about the business impact of companies who activate purpose. So to me, it it's the right thing to do, but it's the right thing to do because it attracts talent, it delivers results, and it's a sustained competitive advantage. So what would you say to, you know, we talk to a lot of marketers, I'm sure you do as well, who are in businesses that are more sales-led, you know, B2B businesses, that are more sales-led than marketing-led with their growth. And so they have to kind of fight this battle or push this agenda of, hey, we need to be investing in brands. Do you have any advice besides go get the data and try to educate your CEO or CRO or whoever's responsible for growth 
any suggestions for how marketers listening that are more those types of organizations that maybe haven't bought in yet, how they should go about getting that buy-in? I think for any company, there are two two reasons I think a lot of companies embark on the purpose journey. The first one is their employees are not highly engaged. They're not uh, they're not putting everything into work. They they don't have a meaning in their work. They don't have a deeper meaning. They don't feel like what they're doing every day has an impact on people's lives. So I would un- I would understand where your employees and your associates are in their feelings about the company and their their affinity with the purpose of the company. Every company has some purpose. Some are implicit. Some are explicit. And then the second the second issue is is leadership teams are often not aligned on the kind of company they're trying to create. And purpose is a vehicle for that alignment. And if you don't have a leadership that is aligned on the kind of company it's trying to create, that doesn't end well. And I've been parts of companies that have not had the leadership aligned, and that's not a good scene or situation. And purpose is a great way to bring a company together. And and of course, I'm not just saying to create a statement or a video. I mean, it's it's where does this brand come from? Where is it going? What impact could it make in the world? How does that come to life in people's daily work? How does it affect your innovation? How does it affect your measurements? How does it affect your communication? So it's a way of doing business. It's an operating system. So I think my advice to anyone is talk to your employees and talk to your leadership. And I'm not saying purpose is the answer, but my guess is an eight times out of 10 purpose will help that company find a greater direction, a greater meaning for its customers and a greater meaning for its employees. And I'm, and I'm really happy how you unpacked what a, a genuine purpose really entails and how if, if it indeed is the right purpose and it's truly embedded in the way you conduct business then it can nurture and nourish the success of your business, the commercial success of the business. Where does purpose sometimes go wrong? Or why is, is it sometimes that the purpose doesn't actually work out to be what it could have been? Well, I think, Dean, often a team sees the purpose as a marketing idea or an ad idea or an ESG idea and not a company idea. I think it falls apart when when everyone, it, it, it needs to be everyone's. It needs to be internalized by everyone. So if the legal group or the product supply group or the R&D group don't feel like this is right, it is genuine, and it is something they can see changing their work, then it's not going to stick. So where it goes wrong is leadership teams do not fully engage and take the time to internalize this themselves as human beings, talk about it among, among their leadership group, and, and genuinely believe this is a better way, this will lead to a better way of doing business. Yeah, you're so right about when it's seen as something that is extraneous to the business. That's when uh, it's, it's somehow even not relevant, really, or, or sometimes even out of character uh, to the brand or to the organization. Yeah, I've seen many teams. I've been in meetings with dozens of companies in the last 10 years where I've heard the comment, okay, we got to do the business, and after we get that done, we'll do the purpose. 
It's no, 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 no. The purpose is the business and the business is the purpose. And, and that's, and, and, you know, if that's not the case, it's likely not going to stick and it's likely, likely not going to be successful. So a lot of what we're talking about here in terms of how you get to having a clear, effective brand purpose that drives business results is really the people side and the cultural side of things. And that's something I fundamentally believe and have seen in the course of my career is the best strategy in the world, the newest technology, the greatest idea. It doesn't matter if you don't have the right people set up and bought in in the right way to actually affect that change. So I'd like to touch on quickly some of the learnings and perspectives that you have from another book that you published in 2017 called Unleashing the Innovators. And it's about how mature companies find new life with startups. And I love one of the headlines from it that says, today's established companies must find new ways to reignite their entrepreneurial DNA and jumpstart revenues or risk losing their way. And of course, you know, that's our business. You know, we're called Rival. We are about bringing challenger mindsets and models into more established businesses. So I'd love to talk about that for a couple minutes, maybe just sharing your perspective from writing that book and just your recommendations to people listening around how do you create a culture of innovation? I wrote that book because I was seeing so many big companies experimenting with startups and so many startups trying to figure out how to be relevant to big companies. And I didn't feel like there was a good playbook for that or, or, or good data on that. So I partnered with a research firm and we researched a whole bunch of companies who were working with startups and a bunch of startups working with big, com big companies for the learning. And I just thought it would be a very interesting as a intellectual exercise, a great way to spend my time. I wanted to learn about this topic and, and nothing will surprise you on this, but what, what we found most fundamental was that those startups that help big companies and vice versa had deep respect for each other, had alignment on their purpose and taught each other. It, you know, it was a very, very open and interactive relationship, taught each other the best practices and how they were achieving what they were achieving. So, uh, all the stuff that we're seeing on lean innovation and agile, which has been around for many, many, many years, this stuff is real and startups typically work in a very agile way. And so many big companies have discovered that they're getting better at it. Uh, but I think learning how each other works and being humble enough to adopt maybe some new systems, new best practices, new ways of working, that's where, that's where it's really rich. And, and I just think it's, um, young companies have so much to offer Big companies have so much to offer. Getting the chemistry right between those two can lead to helping big companies understand what's around the corner and helping small companies scale faster. So Dean, I'd love to hear your perspective on that because, you know, your career, you've worked in some very big companies, but also, you know, as an advisor, as an investor, just with how I know you like to spend some of your time outside of the world of Shell, you're involved in a lot of early stage startups as well. So with your perspective on both those worlds, how would you recommend people think about bringing them together? Well, the first thing is I think big companies who attempt to be as agile as small companies uh, have no chance if they don't want to unlearn or shed some of their practices that they have developed by being big. <laughs> uh, it's almost like a daddy dance, you know, trying to be hip, but dancing the same way that you would have danced regardless of the beat. 
conversely, I think small companies should also um, learn what are the lessons of scale? What are the lessons where you're trying to play a bigger game? Sometimes the game that you can be destined to achieve, but you're not yet there. Because I think you've got to dream big as well and, and, and play to the long game and not just play to the short game. And so there is something to learn from each other. And I think um, it's also fashionable for big companies to have, um, shall we say, resident entrepreneurs. Yeah, I'm sure you've heard of that, of the entrepreneurs in residence. That's because they're trying to foment this sense of uh, entrepreneurism or being entrepreneurial within a large organization. If the antibodies don't reject that, it can really empower people to think through different playbooks, introduce new value chains. But if it's just for show, it's not going to work, right? Because you're unwilling to unlearn and also, um, you know, free up some space in your cup so that some fresh tea can be poured into it. Otherwise, there's nothing new that will happen. And that is the very definition of insanity, right? It's just doing the same things and packaging it in a different way. Dean triggered something. Uh, one beautiful thing about that book was I spent so much time with interesting developing companies and the level of passion for the customer and the product they were building, the purity of that, you know, customer information was so precious that they were, they were gaining customer information every day. They had this drive, this passion, this ambition to make a difference in the lives of customers. And they were just always, always working to make the product better. We get more complicated in bigger companies. You know, if we could have bigger companies thinking that single-mindedly about making customers' lives better and improving products, uh, that we, 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 we just get distracted in big companies. So one beautiful thing I found inspiring, uh, that the big companies that saw that, that felt that in the startups they were working with, you know, genuinely reevaluated how they were spending their time, where they were focused what was important in those companies. And that's a really positive change. Well, the trigger from that trigger <laughs> is that when you talk about customer obsession is, I think you're absolutely right. Um, I just wish more people asked the question why, not just what, because sometimes we treat, well, I don't know if you agree, Jim, but sometimes we treat customers as if they are doing our, their, our jobs. And and sometimes I'm always I'm always intrigued by the whole uh, Henry Ford quote about him. They were only asking for faster horses. Uh, and and if we understood more about why they say they need or want something, I think it could come. It could it it could result in in a better conclusions or better ideas and innovations. Would you agree with that as well? Fabrizio Freda, who is the CEO of Estee Lauder Companies, who's had a fantastic run there. He's an ex PNG person. He talks about customer-inspired innovation, not customer-driven innovation. And I think that's a beautiful way to think about it. Customers can tell you if they don't like something, fine, that's important, that's good. But they cannot tell you about what would just excite them beyond anything. And so I love that thought. Don't get too far away from your customers, but only realize that they're inspiring. And the creativity, the innovation... The new thinking has to come from your team. 
I think that's a great place to start to wrap things up. So the last question that we're going to ask all our guests, all our guests, Jim and Dean, I want to get an answer from you as well. What's the one thing that people should do differently after listening to this episode? I would hope this has maybe inspired people to think about their intentionality in life and where they are spending their precious time in their work and outside their work. And are they happy with that? And are they thinking that through deeply in terms of building the kind of life and relationships they want to build? I think, you know, a lot of, a lot of the thoughts and, and, and conversations and purpose from the brand or from the organization, one thing that you do need to also intersect with that is your own sense of personal purpose. Because I think when you define a golden intersection between the two, you will flourish, you will thrive. And also, if, it, if you can't find that intersection, perhaps that's the world telling you and your own consciousness telling you there's another journey that's more appropriate for you. All right. And with that, we are going to leave it. Jim, Dean, thank you so much for making the time. I really enjoyed it. I know that people listening will have too. Jim, if people want to find out more about you, what you're up to, get connected, where do you want to direct them? They can go right to our, my website, my Twitter feed, LinkedIn, whatever's convenient for them. Great. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. Have a great day. Take care. Scratch is a production of Rival. We are a marketing innovation consultancy that helps businesses develop strategies and capabilities to grow faster. If you want to learn more about us, check out wearerival.com. If you want to connect with me, email me at eric at wearerival.com or find me on LinkedIn. If you enjoyed today's show, please subscribe, share with anyone you think might enjoy it, and please do leave us a review. Thanks for listening and see you next week.